But before all of the efficiency talk, it's really important to understand that good emergency medicine is first based on good evidence-based medicine and quality patient care. That has to underpin everything else in this talk. You need to master or at least be very good at evidence-based medicine and quality patient care before you worry about efficiency. Hey guys, thanks for checking out this episode of Practical EMS. This one's gonna be a little bit more specific for ER APPs, nurse practitioners and PAs that wanna increase their efficiency in the emergency department. Um, this is something I feel like I'm pretty strong at. Um, I tend to see the things that are inefficient um, and I tend to do the things that are more efficient in the emergency department. Um, I think a lot of it's my personality. I like to be very busy at work. I like to see a lot of patients. Um, I like to move them quickly through the emergency department. I see our job a lot as weeding through the patients that are safe to go home so that we can find the ones that are critical, the ones that are dying, the ones that need to be admitted. So we can spend a lot of our time doing the emergent procedures um, and you know, potentially giving life-saving medications, life-saving interventions that those patients need. Um, and in a high volume system like the one I work in, I feel like efficiency is very important because you have to find those patients that really need you um, you know, out of all the patients that you're going to see during the day. This is something that's my opinion only. A lot of these tips are going to be very practice specific, so they may or may not apply in your setting, but I do think a lot of them are pretty universal. Um, so I think there will be a lot of benefit from this um, episode. Um, my group asked me to prepare kind of a talk for our APPs on efficiency, um, and so a lot of that is the material I'm using for that. And um, I think it's, it's applicable to a wide variety of, of emergency settings. You know, these are things that I've learned from working with efficient physicians, um, interviewing efficient physicians on my podcast, um, as well as some material from Ruben Strayer's How to Think Like an Emergency Physician, because a lot of how to think like an emergency physician is very much how to be efficient. Um, and that must be something that emergency physicians learn a lot in their um, residencies. Um, but it's not taught in nurse practitioner school. It's not taught in PA school. So it's something you really have to adapt to when you find yourself working in an emergency setting as an APP. One thing that my group does and I think is important or that they don't do rather is require a specific patient count for your shift or per hour average. Um, you know, if you're seeing one and a half patients an hour or four patients an hour, they don't really care. They're not going to fire you over over something like that. And I think it's important to not have a strict requirement because some days are just going to be really high uh, acuity and high, highly um, complex patients. And you're not going to be able to see four patients an hour. You're going to see one or two and that's fine. It kind of depends on the day. Um, so I think it's important not to drive people to be as busy as possible if that's not your personality or if that's just not the day. Um, so I think that's a good uh, piece of advice is if you're, you know, a manager of APPs that you don't have a specific requirement of how many patients to see per hour. Now, if somebody's lagging way behind and they're not even seeing one an hour, that's a different scenario. But I think requirements should be somewhat vague um, because every APP is going to be a little bit different. Their comfort level is going to be a little bit different and the acuity that they see is a little bit different. And if you're only seeing super high acuity, it's going to be very hard to see a lot of patients per hour. Um, my personality is someone that really likes to be busy. I like to always have something to do. It's one reason that I'm attracted to emergency medicine as a PA. 
is that the shifts go by very quickly because there's always something to be done. There's a laceration to be repaired. There's a patient that needs to have their results discussed with them. There's a patient that needs to be admitted. And it makes our shifts go by really, really fast. And I love not looking at the clock. Um, that's one thing I don't miss from the ambulances. Some days when it was slow, you're looking at the clock, wondering when you're going to get to go home all day long. Um, and so it's really nice not having that, you know, in my high volume setting, there's always something to do. And that's what I enjoy. This talk really isn't for you if you're pretty comfortable with where you're at in emergency medicine. If you're not trying to get more efficient, um, if you're kind of comfortable with your patient volume, uh, this talk probably isn't for you. But if you're trying to up your game a little bit, if you're trying to be more efficient, be more of an asset to your emergency department and the physicians you work with, I think you're going to get some good tips from this talk. Of course, they're going to be more tailored toward my specific setting, but I think a lot of them are general enough that they can apply to any emergency department that you find yourself working in. So why does efficiency even matter um, in the emergency department? In our type of setting, in the emergency department, beds are a very limited commodity, and we only have a certain number of them, regardless of where you find yourself practicing. And even if it's a slow day, it's better for the patients to free up those beds for the next patient that might be coming in, whether they're coming in through the triage system, coming in by ambulance, walking in, regardless of how they're getting there, you need to free up these very limited commodities for the next patient that might be sicker than the one that's in the bed. So the patients that are safe to go home need to be discharged. The ones that need to be admitted need to be admitted so that the next patient who is potentially the highest risk patient in the department because you don't know what's going on with them can have a bed to be put in. And this is especially important the higher volume you work in. And I work in a very high volume system, and so these beds are always taken up. You know, there's, it's rare that we have a whole bunch of free beds sitting empty. The more likely scenario is that all the beds are tied up, and we need to get them freed up for the next patients that are coming in. The other big reason to be efficient is you're more of an asset to the emergency department and the other providers that you're working with. Because the nurses, the charge nurses, know they can rely on you that when you come on shift, you're going to be able to free up beds and keep the department moving. When the department stagnates, it's tough because the intake process slows down, there's no beds for patients to be moved to, and you may have critical patients waiting in the waiting room that may not have even been assessed by a provider. So it's really important for good patient care and to be an asset to your fellow emergency department workers. A couple of caveats I have in here. I'm really not that smart, and you don't have to be either to be efficient. Um, you know, I, I feel like I've been exposed to patients enough um, as my, from my experience as a paramedic and as an EMT. You know, since 2008, I've seen a lot of patients, and I feel like my experience really serves me well in being able to determine sick versus not sick. Um, but going back to not really having to be that smart to be efficient, you really don't. You don't have to be super academically smart to be efficient. And I don't feel like I'm that academically smart, but I feel like I have a lot of common sense and a lot of ability to identify sick versus not sick. And I really rely on that skill in the emergency department. I'm also very aware of my limits and the patients that I'm comfortable with and the ones I'm not comfortable with and the ones that are high risk and the ones that are low risk. And so I regularly ask the physicians questions that I'm working with, and I think it's important to have that open line of communication. Especially when I was a new PA, I would ask a lot of questions about the disposition. I would get some results back and not really know what to do with them. And as I gain more experience, you know, I'm over three years in the ER now, 
you know, I ask a lot less questions of the physicians. A lot of my questions now are, here's my plan. Do you agree with this? Um, you know, more, more to verify my plan than to ask what I should do. Um, but I think the best situation, especially for a new APP, is that open line of communication with physicians um, so that you can get up to speed. You didn't do a residency likely. They did. They know a lot better how to manage these patients than you do. So have that open line of communication and have them help you manage the patients. We'll talk a little bit more about the ability to identify sick versus not sick a little bit later, because I think that is a key concept that is maybe a little bit misunderstood. But before all of the efficiency talk, it's really important to understand that good emergency medicine is first based on good evidence-based medicine and quality patient care. That has to underpin everything else in this talk. You need to master or at least be very good at evidence-based medicine and quality patient care before you worry about efficiency because the patients need to be number one. And if you're moving too quickly, you're going to potentially miss something. And that's more important to consider than efficiency and how many patients you're seeing in a shift. Um, so I just want to reiterate that, that really underpinning this entire conversation is really just the fact that you need to focus on quality patient care and evidence-based medicine. Be a good practitioner of emergency medicine before you worry about your speed. And ultimately, the better you get at evidence-based medicine and quality patient care, you're going to be more efficient because good evidence-based medicine actually allows you to move fast because you're not over-ordering tests, you're asking very pertinent questions, you're doing very pertinent physical exams, and you're not wasting a bunch of time on things that you don't need to waste time on. And that's really good evidence-based medicine. And especially when I was new, I would order a ton of stuff on every patient because I wasn't really sure what kind of workups they needed, so I would order more rather than order less. And I think that's fine to do when you're new, but as you kind of learn the standard of care and get better at evidence-based medicine, you realize what needs to be ordered and you don't throw everything at the wall. And that actually allows you to be more efficient when you're ordering very clinically relevant tests. Just ask the pertinent questions of the patient. You're not in the room hemming and hawing, asking a bunch of questions that pop into your head. Like when I was new, I would just ask a lot of questions just to kind of say that I did. And now my questions are very focused. I need the answers to a bunch of very specific questions depending on the chief complaint, and then I can move on from there. I'm not just asking a bunch of random questions and you know, trying to think of differentials while I'm in the room. Those are already in my mind. The questions are already in my mind. So I don't have to spend a ton of time getting the patient's history in most, most situations. And of course, quality patient care is the ability to make the patient actually feel cared for. They don't care about evidence-based medicine. They care that you actually heard them, that they, felt, that they feel heard, and that you actually took good care of them. And so being able to tactfully get a patient's history while making them feel heard and listened to and taken care of is also an important skill because they don't really care about the tests. They care that you address their pain um, and things like that. And so it is an art form to actually move through patients quickly while also making sure that they feel heard and feel taken care of and that you're addressing the reason that they're in the emergency department. And that's a tough thing to teach, but it, it does come with experience. And I think that kind of needs to be mastered or at least, uh, at least well understood before you move on to efficiency because you can be fast, but if you're not making the patients feel cared for, you're going to get a lot of complaints and patients are just not going to have a satisfactory emergency department visit. And that is a big part of our job. So I think it's important. So a little bit back to the sick versus non-sick, uh, not sick discussion. I think that this is something that is not innate in you to identify. I don't think you can walk in the first day of the job and determine sick versus not sick very accurately. Um, on the ambulance, I think it's a little bit easier because on the ambulance, you're really identifying 
dying patients versus not dying patients. Do I need to immediately intervene or can they wait until the hospital? In the emergency department, it's a little bit more subtle. It's, does this patient need to be admitted? You know, it's not, are they actively dying? It's, are they sick enough they need to stay in the hospital? So there's a little bit different levels of sick versus not sick in the emergency department. And it's a little bit more subtle. And I think it's something that really only comes with time and experience and patient contacts. I don't think you walk in day one able to identify sick versus not sick based on your school experience. Um, I think I was a little better at it because of my time as a paramedic, which helped a lot because I did see a lot of patients. Um, you know, over the last 15 years, I've seen a lot. And so I feel like I do have a good idea of sick versus not sick. Patients will always surprise you, though, so you need to be aware of that as well. Um, you know, the patients with a lot of chronic illness, the older they are, you need to be aware that maybe your initial assessment of sick versus not sick may not be accurate. And you may want to not be so hasty discharging an elderly patient. They may present themselves with something else if they're in a department a little bit longer. Um, so the older they are, sometimes it's wise to have them hang out, monitor them a little bit longer, even if everything's resulted, because sometimes they take a little bit to actually present themselves. Um, but I think it's something that is kind of sold as this thing you should be able to do right away. And I just don't think sick versus not sick, especially in the emergency department as an APP, is something that is very easy to begin with. I think it just comes with time and patient contacts. And so when you're new, I think you need to be aware that you may not be good at sick versus not sick and kind of guard against that. And so when you are new, I think you do need to order more tests, especially if you're seeing someone independent of a physician. You probably need to cast a wider net to make sure you're not missing things, get other people's eyes on the patient, hold on to them a little bit longer because you shouldn't trust yourself to really determine sick versus not sick until you've gained some experience and some time in the emergency department. Sick versus not sick is a lot more about what the patient is not saying. It's a lot less about what they're saying and a lot more about what they're not saying. And the subtle, you know, verbal, the subtle nonverbal cues that the patient's giving you. Um, you know, the anxiety, the tearfulness they might be having, the way their family's interacting with them. Um, if they're stoic, um, you need to take those patients more seriously because they're not going to tell you all of their complaints. They're not going to tell you they're in 10 out of 10 pain. And so you need to guard against that a little bit. You know, it's that ability to see a patient walking down the hallway before you've even seen them, and you can say, that patient needs to be admitted. Or, you know what, I think that patient's going to be able to go home. Watching a patient walk down the hallway gives you a lot of information as to whether a patient can stay or whether they can go home. Um, and so it's a lot of these things kind of compiled into, you know, this kind of abstract definition of sick versus non-sick. And a lot of times, once you've more developed this skill, you know in about 30 seconds after talking with a patient whether they need to be admitted or whether they're going home. I know a lot of times before I've seen any test results that I'm going to admit a patient. You know, if they're super symptomatic and dizzy, I don't think we're going to fix this quickly. They're going to have to stay or, you know, a high-risk chest pain with a lot of medical history who's never had a heart attack, but they have enough history that they really should not be going home. They need to stay for a stress test. Um, there's lots of different examples like that, but the better you get at the skill, it allows you to be more efficient because you can predict what the disposition is going to be without obtaining a bunch of lab results. You're still going to wait for all the lab results. You're still going to order all the tests, but it's going to allow you to make that disposition in your head a little bit quicker. And the higher volume system you work in, the quicker you're going to develop this skill. When I was a paramedic, I think I probably saw six to 10 patients average a day. Um, compared to what I see now, that's like a third a lot of times of what I'll see now. And so, you know, I had 10 years 
full-time as a paramedic, seeing six to 10 patients a day. Now I've had over three years of seeing 20 to 30 to 40 sometimes patients a day now. And so if you work in a high volume system as an APP, you're going to see high volume enough that you're gonna develop this skill pretty quickly. You're not gonna need you know, three or four years to develop this skill. You're gonna develop it within a year because you're gonna have enough patient contacts. And I think at the end of the day, sick versus not sick is really about numbers. You've just gotta see a lot of patients, you've gotta see a lot of dispositions, um, and that will allow you to develop that skill. So, my efficiency tips in no particular order. See ambulance patients first. Um, especially in my system, ambulances typically go directly to a bed. In the back of the emergency department, they don't go through a triage system. They typically go right to a bed unless the charge nurse determines that they're really not sick and they can wait. The reason you want to go see these patients first is because they are going to have no orders. They have not seen a provider and the EMTs and paramedics are likely going to have information you might not be able to get from the patient. Um, they're going to be able to tell you what the house looks like. They're going to be able to tell you where they picked up the patient. If the patient's confused, the paramedics and EMTs are going to give you all the history. So regardless of what I'm doing, if I hear there's an ambulance being roomed, I stand up and I go get report. Because um, these are the highest risk patients in the department. They don't have any provider assessment. Um, you know, a physician or APP at least has not seen this patient. They have no orders, um, so nothing's getting done on them. And you don't know what their vital signs even are. So they are the highest risk patient in the department, so they need to be number one priority. And it's really tough sometimes. It's really hard to stop what, what you're doing and go see the ambulance because likely you're in the middle of something, you know. If you're in the middle of a procedure, you can't just stop the procedure. But if you're just charting or whatever you're doing, it, it sucks, but you got to stop and go see that patient. And it really improves our relationship with the EMS crews as well. Because it would drive me crazy when I was a paramedic and when I was an EMT and you would be there to drop off a patient and nobody would be there for a report. Um, you know, at least if the nurse is there, you can give them report. But we really appreciate it when there's a provider in the room. That means they're taking us seriously. They're taking the patient seriously. And it means a lot that they've come over. Um, we know they're busy. Um, and so I try to have that respect for the EMS crews now on the other side of it as a provider. I try to get there and listen to their entire report without interrupting them because that's another thing that always annoyed me too is the constant interruptions um, to ask questions. And being on this side of it, I see why the providers interrupt. They're very busy. They need to get to the point. Um, but I just don't think it takes that much time to stand there and listen to the full report from the EMS crew because likely they're going to answer your questions in the report. Um, and then you can move on. So pop up from whatever you're doing, see those patients, get orders placed, because um, they're going to be the highest risk patients, and it's important for efficiency. Next tip, make dispositions before seeing new patients. Um, this is a big one that I heard even when I started. Um, the order of doing things, you know, can vary a little bit. I think seeing the ambulance patients is pretty high up there, but this one's also very high up there. If a patient has everything back, all their results are in, all their imaging and all their lab work, they need to have a disposition made. Unless you're waiting on some other type of assessment or a specialist assessment or a physical therapy evaluation or something like that, they need a disposition. And that should be the priority. So if everything's back and you're comfortable sending this patient home, they need to be discharged before you go see the next patient, as long as that next patient already has orders in. In the system I work in, they come through a triage system, and so they're going to have orders placed, and those things are all in process. And so it's not critical I go see them. Somebody has already laid eyes on them unless they're coming in by ambulance. And so you need to disposition the patients that are resulted first. 
if they need to be admitted, send the hospitalist a note, call the hospitalist. Um, if they need a specialist consultation, you need to consult them um, and then worry about the new patients that are being roomed. And along the same line is you really need to already have planned what to do with that patient before their results are back. Always plan on a negative workup. This is something I believe I got from Ruben Strayer that when you're talking about patients, when you're working as a team with your physician or when you're working by yourself, plan on a negative workup because that's usually what we get. If, if a workup... <clears throat> If a workup is positive, it's very easy to decide what to do. If they have an elevated troponin, they're probably coming into the hospital. If they have an acute kidney injury, they're probably coming into the hospital. If they have an elevated lipase, they have pancreatitis, they're probably coming into the hospital. Positive lab results, positive imaging results are very easy to disposition because you're just going to make that consultation. You're going to talk with the hospitalist. You're going to treat their hypokalemia. Whatever it is, you're going to treat it. And there's not really any question about that part of it, but you need to plan on a negative workup because most of our workups are negative. And if this patient has a negative workup, are you and the physician you're working with comfortable discharging the patient? Or if their workup is negative, do they still need to be admitted because they need something else or some other test that we can't perform in the emergency department? So it's best to talk about this with your partners that you're working with or have in your own mind to plan for negative results before the disposition is back. That way, if you're both busy, if I'm working with a physician, we're both getting hammered, we're both constantly doing different tasks, I get the workup back and I see it before the physician, I can go discharge that patient. We don't have to have another conversation about the negative results. We know what the plan is because we've already planned on negative results. So have that plan early in the workup. Always be communicating with your partners you're working with so that you don't have to come back and have another conversation about what to do with the patient when all their results are in. For example, if you get an elderly patient that's fallen and has hit their head, um, you're probably getting a CAT scan of their head, maybe their neck, maybe some lab work. Um, plan on that head CT being negative because if it's positive and they have a subdural head bleed, an epidural head bleed, whatever, that's going to be easy. You're going to get the, the specialists involved. They're probably going to be admitted. But plan on it being negative because most of the CAT scans you order will be negative. So is that elderly person, are they ambulating well enough that they're going to go home if it's negative? Or are they still going to have to be admitted if it's negative? Have that plan together early in the patient's visit. Next tip is run the board frequently. Now this is probably a little bit specific to what computer system you're using. But I imagine, um, despite the fact that I've only ever worked in one emergency department, you probably have some computer system that lays out all the patients by room number. And running the board is simply clicking through each patient, deciding what the plan is for each of them, seeing where in the course of their ER visit they are. You know, no results, some results, waiting on this, waiting on this consultation. Uh, this one's admitted, this one I haven't seen yet. It's just clicking through all these patients and, you know, quickly in your mind determining where in the ED course they are. And the suggestion is to do this really after each new patient. So you get up, you go see a new patient, whether it's an ambulance or one that came in through the front of the emergency department, you go see that patient, come back, sit down, put in orders, and then run your board. A lot of systems, we use Epic in my particular system, there's a comment section. And in that comment section, I typically will use it to kind of document where the patient is in their ED course, whatever we're waiting on, um, if they're resulted, what consultation we're waiting on, or what evaluation we're waiting on, or I'll just put admitting in there to let everybody know I'm talking to the hospitalist or whatever specialist to get them admitted to the hospital. 
a lot of the docs that I work with want to run the board, you know, a few times during the shift. I typically don't like to run the board with whoever I'm working with because I run the board so many times during my shift. I've probably already run it 15 times that hour because I don't just run it after each new patient. If I'm putting in a patient's disposition and all their discharge stuff and discharging them, that takes a couple minutes of time where I'm not looking at the board. So after I'm done doing that, I run the board. Um, if I get up to go use the bathroom and come back, I run the board. Um, I'm constantly looking for new results, new imaging, new patients that I've, I run the board typically 15 to 20 times an hour. So I don't need to do that with the physician. I've already done it a whole bunch of times. I know exactly where each patient is. If you're somebody that needs to get on your phone and scroll Facebook every hour, you're probably going to be slower than I am because I'm not scrolling Facebook on my phone. I'm running the board. And I run the board so frequently, I probably drive myself a little bit crazy because if I'm doing a laceration repair and that takes 20 or 30 minutes, I come out feeling like I am completely behind because new patients have probably been roomed, patients have results, I've you know lost a half hour of you know time where I probably would have run the board 10 times, and so I feel like I'm way behind. And that's probably just a pressure I put on myself, but it also makes me more efficient. And of course, this only really applies to non-emergent procedures like laceration repairs, um, therapeutic lumbar punctures, arthrocentesis, things that aren't time sensitive. Um, you know, everything else, central lines, chest tubes, stuff like that. Of course, you got to do it immediately, um, regardless of what else is going on, because that patient needs a life-saving intervention. But for something that's not life-saving, um, but is still a procedure, I try to be a little bit strategic by when I decide that I'm going to be taken out of the running for 20, 30 minutes to do a procedure. You know, I typically wait until there's no ambulances that are being expected, and sometimes there's no good time to do, to do the procedure, and you just got to go in and do it. Um, but I do try to be a little bit strategic about it. If you are using Epic in your particular emergency department, um, you might be using the chat feature to talk with specialists. We use, use that almost exclusively now um, in talking with the hospitalists and all the specialists for consultation, almost exclusively. And... One thing we have to do numerous times a day is send in an admission request to the hospitalist. We don't really talk to them on the phone anymore. We send them a chat. And whatever system you're using, this really applies to, um, whether it's on the phone or whether it's in a written format, like in a chat in the computer system. I do not write books and paragraphs on why I would like to admit the patient. I keep it very concise. Um, and very to the point. Um, the specialist, the hospitalist is going to have to look through that patient's chart so I don't spell out all the results. I give them the pertinent stuff and then I send the message. Um, and there's a fine line between writing, you know, just enough stuff and, and too much. And I try to have a little bit of a balance, but they're very concise because it's a, it takes a long time to write multiple paragraphs about a patient. You know, that's going to take five minutes potentially to write that. Um, I like to keep it much more brief and to the point, and if they have any questions, they can ask me or they can call me. Um, and I think they appreciate that, and it certainly saves us a lot of time in the ER to take one minute to send in, an, uh, to send in an admission request rather than five minutes to send in an admission request. Because ultimately, if you're admitting a patient, there should be a pretty clear reason and that reason is the main thing you need to have in there. You know, if you're hemming and hawing about why you need to keep a patient, or if I don't really have a clear reason as to why I need to admit the patient, then I'll typically write more because I'm trying to justify why I need this patient to be admitted. You know, sometimes if I'm admitting a patient because the physician thinks it's necessary and I don't have that clearly in my mind, 
the hospital still pushed back. And that's because I didn't write a clear, concise reason for their admission because I didn't understand it. Um, you know, the physician may have, but I didn't really understand the reasoning. And that comes across. And, you know, sometimes I'll write a much longer admission request trying to figure out in my own mind why I'm, I'm trying to get this patient admitted. And it's better to have a clear reason, you know, why they need to stay and convey that in a concise manner to the hospitalist or to the specialist. Another big thing that I think plays into efficiency is note writing. And I don't think it's efficient to get off late. I think it's one thing to see a lot of patients during your shift, but if you're getting off one or two hours late, you're really not being as efficient with your note writing as you should be. And I hate getting off late. I hated getting off late on the ambulance, and that was largely outside of my control on the ambulance. If we got a call, we got a call, and it's going to take however long it's going to take. In the ER, I have a lot more control over when I'm getting off, and that comes down to writing the notes as I go. So I don't save notes till later. I do them as I'm seeing patients, um, regardless of how busy we are, because my end goal is to get off on time. You know, getting off late contributes to burnout, and it, it just really sucks. You only want to be there um, away from your home, away from your family, as long as you need to. You know, this isn't something I'm doing for fun, although I do enjoy it, but I would not be doing it for free, and I want to leave when I'm done. And so I think it really helps burnout and, uh, you know, your mindset if you can be getting off on time, especially when it's largely in your control. A lot of this will come down to, you know, your specific computer system. Um, but typically, I will see a patient, pop open their chart, write the HPI, write the physical exam, do a bunch of the click box stuff, and then move on. And the MDM kind of comes later as results come in and as they're dispositioned. But I like to have all that stuff done so that as soon as everything's back and I can make a disposition on the patient, I am making that disposition, I'm documenting the MDM, and I'm signing the note. Um, so that there's not, you know, I'm not going back an hour later and writing an HPI that I got two hours ago, um, trying to remember a physical exam from three hours ago. I always write the HPI, the physical exam, leave the MDM for when the disposition's happening, and do it, you know, all simultaneously. You know, I'm messaging the hospitalist, I'm finishing the note, assuming that they will be admitted, and then I'm signing the note when they've confirmed that they're actually going to admit the patient. And so as each patient is dispositioned, my notes are signed. This tip might be a little bit specific to where you find yourself practicing. Um, my particular setting, we see a lot of the patients as a team with the physicians. And when we are getting absolutely pummeled, it's actually not efficient to see every patient together. There are some, some ways to do it, I think, that are efficient. If one of you is conducting the patient interview, getting the HPI, doing the physical exam while the other one is documenting um, the chart, or putting in orders and documenting the chart. I think that is one efficient way to see every patient together. Um, but when usually when you're getting pummeled, you don't have time to both of you go into every single room together. Somebody may need to go see the ambulance. Somebody may need to see the other new patient. You're putting in orders on them. You're starting their notes. You may need to kind of divide and conquer temporarily. So the physician might need to go see an ambulance that sounds sick. You might need to go see another new patient, put in their orders and get them started. Um, or vice versa, you know, whoever's available um, may need to do it. You might need to split up. I think it is, if the volume is low enough, I think it is efficient to see every patient at the same time. That way you both get the same story. You've both seen the same physical exam. Um, and so either of you can go discharge that patient without really talking about it because you were both there for the whole, the whole story and the whole physical exam. And it's easier to kind of be on the same page rather than having to talk about it. Um, so seeing the patient at the same time does prevent you from having to have these longer discussions about the patient later on 
Um, but sometimes when you're getting hammered, you have to divide and conquer and kind of come back in the middle at some point later and say, here's what I saw on this patient. Here's what I'm worried about. I think they need to stay. Or this patient's exam was very benign. I think when their results are back, they can go. And so it does take a little more effort to get on the same page. But sometimes when you're that busy, you do have to divide and kind of come back together to talk about the patients. My personal practice pattern is when we're busy, you know, I go down the line and if they saw a patient, I go see a different one. I write the HPI, the physical exam, place the orders, and then move on, you know, give the physician a rundown when we're both sitting down at the computer later on. And if the physician goes in and sees a patient, does the physical exam, gets the HPI, places the orders, you know, if I'm going to sign on to that patient's care and contribute to their care, I will follow all their results and I will try to do all the disposition pieces. I will message the consultants, I will call the consultants, I will go back, reassess the patient's pain, see how they're doing, but I typically will not rehash and repeat a physical exam unless it's pertinent or you know get the whole HPI from the patient because the patients really hate repeating their story a hundred times and a lot of times they've already told it to several people including the doc that saw them earlier, the nurse, the tech, they don't want to tell you again what's going on. So I will typically read the, read the HPI that the physician documented. So all that to say, sometimes you have to divide and conquer. And if I start the patient, you know, get their history, physical exam orders, um, I will hope that the physician will kind of do the back end work and do the disposition piece. And I will pay them back the same way. If they got the patient started, I will try to do the disposition piece. But we don't all have time to do all those pieces when we're getting hammered. In an ideal world, we would. Um, but a lot of times, we just don't have time to be going into every single room together. The other big tip I have is to show up like the day is going to be a complete disaster. It's an emergency department. Regardless of where you work, you are potentially going to see a lot of crazy stuff. Um, and the busier system you work in, the more crazy stuff you're going to see. So I don't come in ever expecting to see one patient an hour and go home early. I come in expecting to see five patients an hour, getting my butt absolutely kicked and having to deal with a lot of crazy situations. Um, if you go in with that expectation that the day is going to be a complete disaster, you usually won't be disappointed, especially in busy systems. Because of this, I typically show up for work early. Um, when I was a paramedic, I didn't have that attitude. You know, being a paramedic was kind of a run down the clock situation. Um, in the emergency department, you're more of an asset to the patients, the other providers, the nursing staff, and especially the patients when you show up early and ready to go. So I'm typically there ready to go, logged into the computer 10 minutes early because I'm assuming that the providers that were there before me have been getting killed all day and typically they have been, and so I think they appreciate that. There might be some people who uh, it annoys that I'm there early, um, but I think largely it's uh, pretty beneficial um, because usually they are getting killed and they are welcoming the relief um, that you will provide by being able to hop on some patients uh, 10 minutes early. Um, in the emergency setting, I feel like that's kind of the norm. It should be a little bit early because um, you just don't know what you're going to be walking into. And I think your fellow providers will appreciate it. Being a PA or a nurse practitioner in the emergency department is a very mentally challenging job as well. And so I don't think this is a job you can really come into sleep deprived. Maybe you can do that a couple days in a row. Um, but most of the time, I really tried to be well rested before I come into a shift, just knowing that the day is going to be challenging regardless. You're going to have challenging patients. You're going to have challenging personalities. You're going to deal with challenging specialists. 
Um, you're going to deal with confusing lab results that you're not sure what to do with, confusing imaging results. You're going to have to think really hard. And so I don't think it's a job like most where you can come in kind of half prepared. I think you've really got to do the work at home, getting well rested, being well hydrated um, to do the job well. And as the providers in the emergency department, we need to be the ones that are comfortable with the chaos. Um, the rest of the ER staff is going to look to us to kind of be the calm, collected provider. And so if you're struggling with the chaos and you're running around like your hair is on fire, you're, you know, speed walking down the hallway from patient to patient, it makes you look like the chaos is kind of getting the better of you. And in a high volume system like the one I work in, it is busy more often than not. And you need to be more calm and collected than everyone else around you because they're looking to you as a leader. And so you need to lead. You need to be the one that is calm and collected in the face of chaos. And that was very true on the ambulance as well. You show up on these scenes as an EMT or a paramedic and people are losing their minds. And if you start to lose your mind as well because you don't know what to do, you don't know where to start, you're no help to the patient. So you have to be calm, you have to be collected, and you've got to be mentally prepared for the shift that you're walking into. And I don't think that's something to take lightly. A couple of key mindset changes that I think are important in the emergency department as a provider are that we are not trying to diagnose what the patient has. Um, we are trying to rule out the emergent or the dangerous diagnoses. Um, this really helps you get out of the weeds when you're talking with the patient, getting an HPI, getting a physical exam. You're not trying to diagnose costochondritis or gastroenteritis. We are trying to rule out ACS, PE, thoracic dissection, appendicitis, pancreatitis. We're trying to rule out all these things, not figure out exactly what's causing a patient's chest pain or abdominal pain. We want to make sure it's not any of the list of dangerous or emergent diagnoses we can make in the ER. We're not equipped to make a lot of the other diagnoses. That's for their primary care physician. Our job is to make sure that they are safe to go home. And a lot of this is um, taught by Dr. Strayer as well. Um, so his information is great on this. I have some other podcasts on that if you want to check them out. Um, and you can go to his website too. Um, but he's got great information about how to think like an emergency physician. You know, the question is not, uh, does the patient have costochondritis? The question is more, is the patient safe to go home having this chest pain or are they not safe to go home from having this chest pain? So when I'm obtaining a history and physical exam on the patient, I'm not asking what the patient has. I'm asking what the patient needs. Um, and this really helps get out of the weeds a lot of times when you're not really sure where to go with a patient. You need to ask yourself what they need. If they're complaining of chest pain, I'm asking myself what tests and imaging and procedures or consultations they might need. I'm not asking what they have. And that kind of helps really clarify all the questions that you need to ask the patient when you think of it more in that context. Another key part of being efficient, I think, and this kind of goes back to getting off on time and avoiding that burnout, is planning your exit early. So you should be thinking about how to wrap up the patients you have really in the last couple hours of your shift. Depending on how long your shifts are, this obviously has some variability. I typically work 10-hour shifts, and so I'm thinking about how to wrap up these patients in the last two hours. That doesn't mean I'm done picking up patients two hours before but I am typically picking up patients that I can wrap up in those two hours so that I'm not passing on a bunch of patients to the oncoming providers um, because they're going to start at a, at a deficit. And I don't think it's fair to pass on a lot of patients um, unless you absolutely have to. So it's easy to see a ton of patients, but if you're still charting for two and a half, three hours after your shift, you're really not doing it efficiently. So when you are new, it is really hard to plan how to get off on time 
um, because you don't really know how long certain things are going to take. And once you get a better barometer for that, you can kind of plan your exit and plan the patients you want to finish up and the ones that need to be passed on early. And one thing I like about being a provider in the ER is getting off late is a lot more in your control than it was on the ambulance. You know, on the ambulance, I might get a uh, call that takes two hours right at the end of my shift. Um, And that was not in my control. That was in the control of the dispatchers and just bad timing. Um, But very much in the ER, there's an abundance of providers typically, depending on where you work. And so you have some ability to kind of control this. So if you're getting off late, it's really something that uh, you can control by documenting as you go and using that critical last two hours to wrap up patients and plan how you're going to leave. So, you know, if I'm working by myself, I typically won't pick up patients in the last hour and a half that I'm not going to be able to wrap up because I'm going to end up having to pass them on to the next provider. Um, You know, so unless they're critical or they need something immediately, I will wait for the, the next provider to come on to pick up that patient. Now, if it's a shift where I am working as a team with a physician and they're getting off later than me, I will see patients a little bit longer or closer to the end of my shift if I'm going to be able to contribute something. So if the physician's busy, I will pick up more patients so that I can, you know, get their chart started, get their HPI, their physical exam and place orders and contribute something to the patient's overall care to make that physician's life a little bit easier when I go to leave. Um, You know, they don't have a bunch of new patients to see. Um, but I try to contribute something meaningful to them. So if I can get the patient started, get orders, get their charting going, typically that's meaningful enough. Um, but if I'm not going to contribute anything to the patient, I'm not just popping in and saying hi to the patient. And in this you know, critical last two hours, hour and a half, you need to be planning on the patients that you will need to hand off to the oncoming providers. Inevitably, there's going to be workups that are taking longer than they should or unexpected results pop up and you can't make a disposition on that patient before you leave. So you are going to have a good idea of those handoffs, you know, a couple hours before your shift's over, at least an hour before your shift's over, you're going to have a good idea of the patients that you're not going to be staying for. And so plan those handoffs with a very concise plan. And I try to make the next provider's life as easy as possible. If I think this patient's going to be discharged, I will write the prescriptions. I'll put in all the discharge stuff and set that patient up as if they're going to be discharged and just have that provider, you know, monitor whatever I'm waiting for just to make sure that it doesn't have an abnormal value or um, that it's not a surprise. Um, But otherwise, I'll have the patient ready to go to make their life as easy as possible. And when you make these concise plans for your handoff, it really needs to be something that's pretty clear. The provider you're handing off to is at a distinct disadvantage. They don't know this patient. They're relying on you for an accurate history and physical exam, and they're trusting you to have a solid plan for the patient. And if your plan falls apart, it's really frustrating for them, and they have to start you know, basically at level zero and go back in and reassess the patient and see what might be amiss. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been the recipient of bad handoff reports. Um, I've been the recipient of bad handoffs that I have to follow. And I've definitely given fellow providers bad handoffs that didn't have a solid plan. And as you gain more experience, it should be easy to kind of um, come up with that plan and say, this patient's going to go home after these other results come in. Or if they're abnormal, you know, I'll need you to admit the patient. But there shouldn't be any huge surprises in there. In rare circumstances, it's going to be inevitable that there's going to be some surprises that the oncoming provider is going to have to deal with. But the large majority of the patients you hand off should really have a solid plan. This tip's a pretty general one, but I think it's it's crucial. Um, use other providers as a resource, especially when you're a new APP in the ER. Um, sometimes you feel the, the expectation to look everything up. Um, you know, your 
looking up a bunch of medications, you're looking up differential diagnoses, you're looking up treatment plans for whatever you're diagnosing the patient with. Honestly, looking stuff up online or, you know, up to date, some of these other online resources is great. Um, But when you're moving at a fast pace, sometimes you just need to discuss your plan with other providers, especially with your physician colleagues that have likely seen this diagnosis a million times, and they can educate you a lot faster than you looking it up on up to date or in another resource. I think it's good to do it. I think you learn better when you look things up, but when you're moving at a very fast pace, I find it much more efficient to just ask a doc that's probably seen this condition a whole bunch of times and can guide me on it and educate me on it real quick rather than taking the time to look it up. Um, We all have our weak spots. I feel like I'm a little bit weak with like orthopedic injuries and splints and stuff like that. And so a lot of times I'll pick other providers' brains on that stuff to make sure my plans are appropriate. But at the end of the day, your other provider should have an open line of communication with you and should be a great resource for you on the fly. The next efficiency tip is to communicate with nursing techs in the imaging department and, you know, miscellaneous other other people you need to talk with. Communicate with them. Don't leave them in the dark about what the plan is, especially the nurses. Um, The nurses that are taking care of the patient are a huge resource, and they can answer questions for the patients if they have an idea of what the plan is. Um, They can tell the patients what we're waiting on if they know what the plan is, and they can help you move the patient through faster. If they know you're just waiting on a urine sample, they can go collect that. If they know you're waiting on a physical therapy evaluation, they can make sure that that physical therapist even knows about the patient or the respiratory therapist knows to come give the breathing treatment. If you communicate the plans to the nurses clearly, they can help you be more efficient by making sure the plan is actually happening. Um, Because if you don't tell them about things, they're not going to know about them. Um, So they can be a huge resource for making sure patients move through the department efficiently. And I've had a lot of nurses, you know, give that as feedback too, is if, you know, they know the plan and they're not in the dark, they can actually be a lot more helpful. And when I was new, I think I used to delegate a lot more than I do now um, because I was so overwhelmed with other tasks. But if I have the time, I will call poison control. I will call imaging to see what the delay is. I'm calling lab to see why the labs have not resulted yet, um, to see if they got lost or something. Um, you know, depending on how busy you are as a provider, the nurses are probably equally busy. And so sometimes delegating those tasks of calling to see what the status of certain things are is really not more efficient to delegate to somebody else. It's just more efficient if you do it yourself. So make sure you have all those phone numbers and don't expect the nurses and the techs to make all these phone calls for you because a lot of times it's just going to be more efficient to make the phone call yourself and get that answer rather than using a middleman to relay you the information, especially because when you're busy, the nurses are also busy. Um, So a lot of times I just find it's better, um, it's more efficient if I just do it myself. Now, one thing I will do, though, is give the nurses verbal orders for things sometimes. If I'm in the middle of something uh, that's important or is requiring a lot of uh, mental energy, if they're asking for orders for antiemetics or pain medications, I will give them verbal orders a lot because I feel like that allows me to just get past that particular task that they're requesting of me and continue focusing on whatever it is I'm, I'm focusing on. And learn the names of your coworkers. Learn the names of the nurses, the techs. Learn everyone's names because it's a lot easier to call them by name if you need something. And it just helps your relationship, your working relationship with your coworkers when you learn people's names. Place orders before you start charting and documenting. Especially after you see an ambulance patient, the first thing you should do when you sit down at the computer will be to place orders so that that patient can start getting their workup done. The nurses can see what you want, start drawing the labs, the techs see what you want, start drawing the labs, um, imaging, you know, gets started. Um, you know, but some providers, uh, if you don't have a specific 
kind of priority for different tasks, you'll sit down and you'll start documenting the entire patient's chart and five, 10 minutes has gone by and you haven't put in any orders. And that patient's visit hasn't really moved. You know, the needle hasn't moved for that patient visit at all, despite the fact that they'd been in the bed for 10 minutes. So always put in the orders first thing when you sit down and communicate with the providers you're working with to make sure someone's doing that task and that you're not just assuming the physician's doing it. Because um, they'll get missed that way and the patient will go way too long without things getting done. Um, and that will really affect, you know, length of stay. Um, also on that same line is don't stack orders if you can avoid it. Um, try to think of everything you want to order right up front, order it all at the same time so the nurses, the techs can get it all done immediately. Um, it does drive them a little bit crazy when we put in some orders and then 15 minutes later we're putting in more orders. Um, of course, you know, when results come in and when imaging results come in and and the plan changes and you got to put in additional orders, that's fine. But for their initial workup, you really should be putting in everything the first time. The other point I think um, regarding efficiency is just to understand that when we get busy, so do all the other services and all the other staff. And so sometimes I think providers have a tendency to think you're the only one that's busy, but if you're getting your butt kicked, likely everybody is likely everybody is as well. And so just have patience for other people, have patience for the other specialists, the other services that are also seeing a lot of patients, um, you know, have patience for the nurses that are taking longer to do stuff because they've got a full bed assignment. Um, the techs are running around getting labs on everybody, putting splints on everybody, have a little bit of patience for them to get some, some, some tasks done, because if you're feeling busy, everybody else is too. So just have a little bit of grace for everybody and understand that when every, when everyone's busy, you need to be the one that's calm and collected, not the one that's running around with your hair on fire. And that kind of leads me to just my last little tip here. And that's kind of what do you do when patients are getting roomed very quickly and you're completely overwhelmed? Um, and I do this a lot when I was new cause I was overwhelmed a lot, but take a deep breath, look at the board, do one task at a time. We can't multitask. Multitasking is a myth. You can only do one task at a time. If there's a patient to be dispositioned, go in, talk to the patient about their results, discharge them or admit them, whatever needs to happen, just do one thing at a time. If you've got multiple patients that need to be dispositioned and multiple patients that need to be seen, it's easy to get overwhelmed and not really handle any of those one scenarios, but you can only do one of them at a time. So if you've got multiple patients that need to be dispositioned, go in and disposition one of them. Come back and do another one of them. If you have new patients that need to be seen, go and see them one at a time. You can't see them any faster than that. You have to see them one at a time. So go see the patient, come back and document. Go see the other patient, come back and document. You can only do one thing at a time, so just pick one of the things and just go do it. Um, rather than kind of sitting there hyperventilating, realizing that a lot of patients need a lot of things, you can only do one thing at a time. We can't multitask at all. So just take it one step at a time and you'll, you'll rapidly get through those patients faster than you think you will. Anyway, guys, I hope this episode was valuable for you. Um, these are kind of my tips that, um, I try to, to adhere to. I'm definitely not perfect at them. Again, I'm really not that smart. Um, but I do try to stick to these as much as I can, and it makes me a fairly efficient provider. Um, I'm definitely not perfect at all of them, but these are kind of the tips that I use to move through patients quickly in the ER, and I think it really improves overall quality of the patient care. The patients are the number one priority, and I think being efficient ultimately benefits the patients. Um, so I do think it's important. Give me some feedback on this episode if you guys enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to give this talk to my group here this next week, so hopefully that goes well. Um, if you guys had any questions, my email, of course, is below. 
Um, I appreciate all the follows and the likes. Um, Thanks for checking out my stuff, guys. Remember to subscribe on the website. It's free for the first month, and you get access to all the exclusive episodes as well as the EKG course, um, which I put a lot of time and energy into. I think it's one of the best online EKG courses. Um, So check it out, guys.